Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Hello and welcome to Coaching Inside the Box. Guys, episode two, our third time recording. I could not be more excited. Specifically, my excitement comes from what we're talking about today. We are talking about Ashington, England, a place you almost certainly have never heard of. Um, And we're talking about it because what happened in Ashington, England, um, from a football perspective, from a soccer perspective, in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, um, uh, produced players in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and the early part of the 70s in a way that that really maybe never has happened uh, in in the history of world soccer. And so it's a fun story. We're going to dig into it. Um, With that said, uh, welcome, Philippe. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Your guys' enthusiasm uh, is just to the roof. <laughs> I didn't know you were, you were directing your question to Andy first or for me first. Always so. Philippe first. Um, let's, you let's throw us a curveball. I mean, you know, you're supposed to be you know, the guy that sets us up and, you know, you just like stop talking and expect <laughs> us to jump in. I mean, you know, it's uh, get your act together, man. I'm working on it. I'm a soccer coach, <laughs> not a podcast host. Uh, that is for sure. Um, so, so let's dig into this a little bit, guys, right? To transcend is a verb defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as to rise above or go beyond the limits of. Ashington, England, their layout and design approved upon and added to the quality of life experienced by working class families in other coal mining communities. Coincidentally, these improvements also benefited the young boys of the community from a footballing perspective as an unintended but nevertheless direct result of attempting to create a new age mining town ashington also became a catalyst and incubator for footballing talent that transcended anything previously known or experienced in britain during the first half of the 20th century ashington england andy where did you come across this this small place in nowheresville northeast england well that's kind of an interesting story in itself because um Bobby uh, Charlton uh, was uh, one of the famous sons, the most famous son of Ashington. And the thread that ties this together is that uh, um, my Uncle Vic played for Napoli at the end of the Second World War, which is a great story we won't go into right now. But but, uh, he stayed over there and played in Italy the first Serie A season back after the Second World War and played central midfield for Napoli. Uh, But... He named my cousin, who was born in the same year as me, 1958, uh, Duncan, after the great Manchester United soccer star, Duncan Edwards. And his eldest son, Victor, you know, my other cousin from that family, uh, played professionally. And Victor named his uh, son, Dean Charlton, uh, after Bobby Charlton, So we have two players that were in the Munich air disaster in 1958 that have influenced the names of people, you know, that I love in my own family. So, uh, you know, that's how steeped in soccer our family is. You know, we're the idiots that name our kids after, um, you know, people that are famous, you know, soccer players that are famous. And to this day, my, my, my cousins support Manchester United because of that connection. And, you know, the connection with Bobby Charlton is he's from Ashington, you know, and, um, and how I got to thinking about this was um, that Manchester United squad were involved in one of the most horrendous sporting uh, air disasters in world history, you know, when their plane went down on takeoff you know, failed to get off the ground, actually, uh, you know, and and uh, smashed into a, a small building at the end of the runway and a fence at the end of the runway. And, you know, many players from Manchester United lost their lives. And what's interesting here is that Philippe is wearing his Chapaquense shirt, you know, uh, and of course, anybody that's familiar with that situation. Well, Philippe, why don't you tell the story about that one? Yeah, so Chapaquense is a small club in Brazil that was in the Serie A for the first time. Uh, our first division back home and they actually qualified for the Libertadores which is the kind of the South American Champions League and they were doing really well and uh, 
one of the games they they went to play I think it was either in Peru or Bolivia they they were going with a company that our airline company that wasn't very very big was like more private um, for more private flights and they wanted to save some money on gas and they thought they could go straight instead of stopping uh, making a stop to f fill the tank and the accident happened they kind of lost gas and yeah and the plane crashed so it was a it was a very sad story because it was kind of a Leicester uh from Brazil at the time and finally um breaking out into uh the big dogs world uh in South America and in Brazil and they faced that incredible tragedy and a lot of um jo famous journalists that were going with them uh also passed passed away so it was a very sad um event in our soccer history so and and india like so like leading up to this podcast and us recording i i uh, you you've you've got a writing that you've been working on and you've titled it um and it's about ashton in england and, and and environment and culture and the impact that it has on on player development but you've titled it the rise and fall of english soccer explained by coal mining the munich air disaster the 1966 world cup and cars Right. And so so that whole you, you've intertwined and connected what seem like completely different topics or areas together to help tell a story that we as youth soccer coaches and educators should should look to follow. Right. And your initial question was, why Ashington? Yeah. So let's tie that back together, because uh, every year uh, on the anniversary of the air disaster where you know the Manchester United plane went down in, in Munich and and all those good players died including the you know the English superstar Duncan Edwards who was only 20 at the time I mean he was a young superstar you know with a great career ostensibly in front of him and and so uh, that reminded me you know it, it, this was uh, not last February but the February before last that reminded me um, you know hey uh, you know, Bobby Charlton, Jack Charlton, you know, they were on that flight. And, you know, and I started thinking to myself, um, what if there was something special where they grew up? Because, you know, they're the only brothers that have ever won a World Cup together, you know, in the history of the world. So, you know, you're, you're in a situation here where you've got to say there was something operating because you look at Bobby and you know, he's kind of the stereotypical, you know, perfect body soccer player. You look at Jack, and he's a big goose of a guy. He's six foot three inches tall and pigeon-chested and long strides. You know, doesn't seem to have a lot of natural quickness. And so I'm looking at the two, and I'm saying, yeah, Bobby, I can see as a natural. But Jack is anything but a natural. You know, so was it something in the community that was special that led to Jack Charlton being able to, you know, be a, a fantastic influence on the English national team and help them to the World Cup? And, and and that that line of thought is is something that I that's close to me, right? Because I, I love reading and listening to Malcolm Gladwell, um, and in his book Outliers, right, he says our ability to succeed at what we do is powerfully bound by where we're from, and and the research of talent hotbeds, whether it be by Gladwell or or, or Daniel Coyle. That the research of talent hotbeds can tell us so much, but so often I think we, as a soccer youth soccer development coaching community, miss it. We look at the wrong things in those talent hotbeds instead of the right things. Right, and you know that we're going to be doing episodes on these, but you know, there's you know, as Philippe can describe. Why don't you describe the favelas of Brazil as a hotbed? Oh, I mean, it's very clear in Brazil that. Um, most players come from Rio and from Sao Paulo, which are the two biggest cities. And it's not only because of the huge population, but um, historically, um, after um, slaves weren't allowed in Brazil anymore, they started building uh, houses uh, illegally in the mountains around the city because they needed to be close to the city to work. And people from the northeast for Brazil, from Brazil and north of Brazil that are very poor starting coming in and getting needing to be close to the city so they started building those houses uh, around the mountains um, around the big cities and it's just if any of you go there one day you're going to be very very surprised because it's literally the definition of a concrete jungle like there's no space 
it's just house on top of house on top of house on top of house and it's it's crazy it's and every little bit of space that they have there are kids playing soccer and most um, brazilian superstars come from there for two reasons first one obviously because they need it it's their only way of succeeding in life it's through uh sports and the actually pretty much only sport that we have to do that is soccer so that's the main reason and because they do it the whole day and they play in tight spaces and they're always playing and that's what developed them so every if you think about every great powerhouse in soccer every great soccer country every country that wins the world cup there's always a story it's like france that won the last world cup they are all kids sons from immigrants that go to france and also live in the suburbs and play soccer the whole time and their parents are the working class and They're not so concerned about school or anything else. They just play the whole day and they develop and become great soccer players. So France, that is a country that has a ton of colonies in Africa, especially these kids from immigrants become the next great soccer players. So it's funny when I uh, heard the story about Ashington and it, it all clicks, like everything happens for a reason. Yeah. And this podcast will show exactly uh, how Ashington did that. And we will obviously relate to Brazil, France, and other countries. Yes. So, so Ashington, England, right? Like the, 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 Andy, you write, similarly in the case of Ashington, Northumberland, which is just north. It's on the coast, just north of Newcastle. Am, am I right? Right. Yeah. Uh, where Bobby and Jackie Charlton were born and grew up, there was an unquestionable link between the environment climactic conditions, primitive community engineering, the working class culture of the day, decision making, both good and bad, that most often had very negative consequences, right? Like Ashington was not a desirable place to live in. But miraculously, during a multiple decade span, right, they provided us with the Charlton brothers, with Jimmy Ab Adamson, with an obscene amount of players that played at the highest level in England. And, and Ashton is, is, is a population of 27,000, right? Right. And can I stop you there, though? Yeah. Because you say it wasn't a desirable place to live in. And, and that's by today's standards, you know, but... By the standards of blue-collar England, you know, the, the lowest of the low, the people that worked down the mines were traditionally, you know, not the brightest. You know, they, they were people that desperately needed a job, so they were prepared to, you know, take a daily prison sentence, you know, and not see daylight for 12 hours, you know, in, in order to provide a living for their families. So Ashington was actually a state-of-the-art mining community when it was built. It followed the bigger mining communities in County Durham and, you know, all of the Northeast. There were lots of mining communities and those were thrown together. Well, the landowners, the moneyed classes that put together the project in Ashington learned from these other, um, you know, poorly put together communities and they created a cookie cut design um, that was, you know, just fascinating because it was row after row of, you know, absolutely the same type of house so that, you know, there's street after street after street after street built exactly the same way and they didn't make the mistakes that were made in other communities that had been built earlier. Ashington was one of the last coal fields in the northeast of England so they came as Johnny-come-latelys to the environment You know, they came with a better plan because they learned from the mistakes that had been made by other mining communities that had been built. Does that and, make sense? Yeah, it, it does. And just for the listeners, guys, like we're going on about Ashington, we're going to dig in deep into to the community and, 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 and the physical aspects of it and the weather of it because all of this played into it. But, but, but Ashington um, had three PFW Players of the Year. And I'm going to guess most of the people listening to this right now have no idea what PFW Player of the Year. Can you enlighten us, Andy? Yeah, it, it was the precursor to the, the Professional Footballers Association Player of the Year. And it took over from that. And PFW was the only Player of the Year designation back in the 1960s before the, the PFA Player of the Year took over that, you know, that designation. And, you know, to be the PFW Player of the Year was literally to be the superstar in the English First Division, you know, which was regarded as the best division in the world, you know, back in those days. You know, it, 
um, you know, hugely popular, huge crowds, you know, and, you know, England up until, you know, that point had been regarded as the world's greatest sleeping power. They didn't participate in World Cups, mm -hmm. you know, until the 1950s. So which left the, you know, the field open in a, other people's opinion for England to win the World Cup. Whether they would have done or not is a moot point. We'll never know. But World Cups were small in the early years compared to, you know, what they are now, which is a global phenomenon. You know, so, so what you've got here is you've got this, um, this uh, very uh, British uh, idea that they're the best in the world. And they provided three players who won that PFW Player of the Year award. Ashington, England. Right. Ashton England provided three players that won that Player of the Year award. And this is the crazy thing about the three players is not only did they come from Ashington, the community, which was never bigger than 29,000 people in population, but all three players came from the same street in Ashington. Laburnum Terrace was the name of the street. And it was a street with maybe 200 people in it, you know, including all the old people as well as the kids. You know, and so, you know, how does this happen? You have to ask yourself, you know, and, um, you know, even if you take the whole community as only being 29,000 max at any point, you know, in its development, then you're saying to yourself, well, how does that match up with other players that have won the PFW Player of the Year? And, you know, and then you look at the, the biggest city that produced PFW Players of the Year. There's two, actually, you know, Liverpool and Glasgow. And, you know, these are massive cities, you know, these are hundreds of thousands of people. Well, Glasgow is a million at this time. At this time, it was a million, you yeah. know, and, and so, you know, and you look at tiny little Ashington and, you know, they more than eclipsed. And if you take it down to one street in Ashington, you know, then, you know, it's absolutely shocking statistically that this one community could actually, you know, produce three players of that quality yeah so so right there's three ashington winners of the pfw right from 61 to 62 and 66 to 67 during a period of six years there's three pfw winners from ashington during a period of 26 years right 60s through early 90s uh there were four glasgow winners so, I mean, Ashington way punched above their weight. But the next question that I have, I think is natural for most, is, okay, so Ashington killed it, right, with PFW players during this, this era. So that's players at the top end. But maybe it's just those kids were just dumb luck, right? They were just better than everybody else. How was the rest of Ashington from a football development perspective during this period? Did they have other professional footballers, or was it just those three? Well, in the generation before the Charlton's, yeah, uh, and uh, – Arguably the best player in, in the nation at the time uh, was Bobby and Jackie Charlton's uncle, Jackie Milburn. And he, if they'd had the award when he was playing, would undoubtedly have won the award. You know, he was incredibly famous and he played centre striker for England. You know, mm -hmm. so, you know, he's that creative class player that pretty much wins all the awards anyway. You know, and so um, it wasn't just Bobby and Jackie that, you know, were internationally famous. In fact, uh, there's a great argument that the three most famous players ever from the northeast of England, that Newcastle on Tyne, Sunderland area of the world, are War Jackie, Jackie Milburn, Bobby Charlton and Jackie Charlton. So this isn't just soccer. This is, you know, th their fame was way beyond soccer. You know, and you, you look up any of those three on the internet and the amount of information you can get is just unbelievable you know tremendously popular individuals but but even more than that right like you in 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 your writing you, you talk about um wherever it is that shakespeare's from and it's a literary hotbed. stratford on avon stratford on avon right it's a literary hot, hotbed but you compare the the famous literary literary people that came from from that hotbed and the percentage of compared to the percentage of famous people that came in from that area where there's a bunch of football clubs around to 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 Ashington and Ashington has way more professional footballers right in a shorter amount of time than 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 Shakespeare's hometown or area um, in, a, in a greater amount of time like right like like Ashington way punched above their weight for a four decade five decade span. Okay, so what we what uh, Wikipedia, you know, is an amazing resource, and and so um, I went to Wikipedia and I looked up famous people from Ashington, 
you know, and there was a total of about 72, 73, 74 famous people from Ashington. And 44 of them were professional footballers. You know, and 10 of them were professional sports people at other sports like cricket, you know, tennis, you know, and uh, more of the upper class sports, you know, from back in the 30s, 40s and 50s, you know, and, and, and so, you know, th there's this amazing percentage of the town's population that made it. And, you know, and it was very important for them to make it because their option if they didn't play pro soccer was down the mines. You know, that was really it in Ashington in those, in those decades. You were either a miner or you got out and you did something that was a lot more fun than being a miner. You know, so they made it as pro soccer players. You know, and maybe that's one of the motivations that the, the kids had is, I don't want to go down the mines, so I've got to make it as a pro soccer player. But there's so much more in play sure. you know, with Ashington you know, in terms of you know, how the environment and the culture played into making these kids professional soccer players so it wasn't just the stars mm -hmm. there was also a bunch of and i'm not going to call them journey journeymen because a lot of them played division one for example um bobby's mum, sissy bobby and jack's mother sissy charlton who you know wrote a book on her own about soccer and yeah. it's, a, it's a fascinating book i couldn't put it down um her brothers four of them played in the english first division so, you know, if you've got a family, you know, literally Bobby and Jack's uncles, four uncles played in the English First Division. And Jackie Milburn, who we mentioned already, who was the England centre striker, was their cousin. So second uncle to Bobby and Jackie. But they were all, you know, entwined in Ashington and they were always, you know, at family parties. And, you know, the history was, was just so deep in that family. And their grandfather played professional soccer. You know, um, Tanner Milburn, his name was, he, he was called Warhorse. And, you know, he was a goalkeeper for Ashington, a professional player. And so you can see the culture that comes through a family. You know, my family played, which is why I've always loved the game. You know, Philippe's family, you know, was, was steeped in soccer. You know, and you look back at, you know, players like Pelé, Ronaldinho, their parents were professional soccer players. You know, and so that culture is obviously helpful pushing players over the top but many players out of Ashington that made it into the pro ranks had no history of professional soccer maybe they didn't make it as high as Bobby and Jackie because the culture makes a difference but many of them were the first generation of professional soccer players in their family you know which also makes this fascinating yeah and like I want to come to Philippe for a second right because uh I don't know a ton about Brazilian soccer, right? But presumably, all of these players that came from Sao Paulo and Rio, right, are the hotbeds of, of, of Brazilian uh, uh, players. There's a, a presumably a ton of professional clubs in Rio and Sao Paulo? Yes. And there's a lot of academies yes. for kids to play in through those professional clubs. Yes. Okay, so I can apply that same logic to Ashington, right? There's a ton of professional clubs in and around that Northumberland, North Newcastle area, or no? No, it's not really that many. That's the, that's the, when I read your stuff, that was the mind boggling thing. Like Shakespeare's home area had something like a hundred professional clubs in a very close proximity to, to Shakespeare's hometown. Not that many, but a lot more, yeah. you know, significantly more. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so, so all of these pro players that came out of Ashington, they came not because um, there were great academies to develop them. There weren't academies there in those days. There weren't academies. In you know, the players didn't get involved with the professional club until they became an apprentice professional. Yeah. You know, and you know, then they were brought in and they had to clean the stands and they had to clean the you know the professional players' boots. Mm -hmm. You know, but there wasn't a feeder system. There wasn't an academy system that fed these players into the pipeline. There wasn't a super nice, a super organized coaching culture. That yeah. Created in in Brazil, that also happened after, uh, probably like. 80s and 90s but like um before like in the 60s and, and 70s like Pelé, Garincha, these guys like Garincha was found in a small city like playing barefoot like just a pickup game on a Sunday and they saw this guy that had his legs completely um twisted like his knees were knock knees like yeah, this yeah, yeah. And they were like, this guy cannot play soccer. And he just ridiculized everybody. There are stories that he would go in practice and he would beat the whole team and get in front of the goal, beat the keeper and stop the ball and walk away. Like he was that guy. <laughs> and like he, they took him, it's funny because they took him to Vasco and 
they didn't let him train because they looked at his legs and like this guy can't play soccer look at his legs and then he went to Botafogo and was like that but so they became pro like this like that wasn't the academy system like there started like it started like in the 80s and stuff and it has nowadays but yeah and I I, I point that out and it's ongoing uh, I think theme in in kind of what we're doing and, and the content we're creating but I point that out because so often I think American specifically youth coaches go down the path to learn from Liverpool's academy and go down the path to learn from some other professional academy, right? Rather than, rather than really digging deep into the background of the greatest players that have existed across all decades, across all generations, and, and looking at, at where they come from. And I think Ashington is a perfect example of that. Like, like uh, Charlton's and, and Adamson, they came from a very unique culture and a very unique background. And so, so I had mentioned earlier we were going to talk about the physical components that made up. Can yeah. I jump in a little bit? Because, yeah. you know, it's not going to make me popular with the professional clubs, but um, the academy system is actually part of the problem. That, 100% I agree. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, and what I've noticed and, you know, to give you some background, you know, I visited, you know, Barcelona and, and, and Real Madrid and, and probably upwards of, of 50 uh, academies in, in, in Britain and, uh, you know, and, and just from places around the world. And one of the things I notice is that there's also, uh, there's, sorry, almost no creative coaching going on. You know, it's, they're not focusing on moves. They're not focusing on ways to beat a player. They're not focusing on the one-on-ones. You know, they're, they're focusing on team tactics. They're focusing on athleticism, fitness, um, winning games. You know, just, you know, the immediate result rather than the long-term development of these players you know so that they're not building tremendous creativity and they're certainly not building a long-term leadership mentality where a player can take over a game like a Palais or a Maradona and and it only takes one of those players you know to win a World Cup and you know one of the things that that just shocks me is um, there's this especially in North America you know this horrible saying defense wins games it's, it's disgusting. It really is. Because if all you do is defend, what's the best result you could get? You say it's that in Brazil, you're fired right away. <laughs> it's, it's a tie. You know, if you defend the whole time, you tie. Sure. You don't win a game, you tie. <laughs> and defense win games, it's garbage. I mean, it's baloney. I could use stronger words. You know, but, <laughs> so, but people believe that crap. You know, defense doesn't win games. What Diego Maradona did to England in, in 1986, the cheat, <laughs> <laughs> the other play that he did in 1986, <laughs> wins games. Yeah. You know, and he dribbled from his own half and scored an unbelievable goal. You know, and, and that's what wins games. You know, what, what Ronaldinho did to England, you know, <laughs> later, uh, you know, wins games. You know, that fantastic free kick where he saw Seaman creeping off of his line and put it over the top into the corner of the net. It's these creative people that win games and you only need one or two if you're lucky like Brazil had in, in the, you know, the late 1990s, early 2000s, you know, you got three or more, you know, and the 1970 team was stacked with creative players. You know, creativity wins games. It, it's not defense that wins games. Don't ever tell me there is no I in team because I've got a decal that clearly shows the hole in the A and the bottom of the A. There's an I in it. <laughs> and, you know, in the word team, you know, I can send you the decal if you want. There's an I in team. There's definitely an I in team. And we need to focus on the I, you know, in, you know, I hate to say it, England and North America. You know, we need to focus on the I in team so that we've got a plethora of individual players that can take us over the top. You know, here we are in Kansas City. What happened this year in Kansas City that was super, super exciting? Uh, uh, Patrick Mahomes won us the Super Bowl. Yeah. yeah the it creative didn't happen until player. we had Patrick Mahomes. Baloney defense wings games. Yeah, yeah. Mahomes won all season long for the Chiefs. 100%. He pulled mm-hmm. it out time and time again. Creatively. Matt, Doing yeah. otherworldly things. And, and you you can, watch Ronaldinho do the look, no look pass, and he started doing the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but coming back to Ashington, right? I, I want to keep keep that that thread going, right? Uh, Ashington. Hopefully, we've we've made this clear. Is one of is a working class mining mining community, right? 
at a time when the mining community matters so much. Andy mentioned earlier how the miners uh, during during the World Wars couldn't be conscripted. They couldn't go off to the fight to the fight on the front lines because the miners of Ashton England had to stay home and produce coal like it was necessary. Um, and and Andy had mentioned earlier that Ashington specifically was developed and, and designed to be a perfect community for mining, right? Um, but in doing so, they unwittingly created an almost perfect physical and psychological environment and culture for developing kids into, fo- into top-class footballers. Right. What, what do you mean by that? So, uh, you know, without the benefits of, you know, all of the photographs that, that I've No, they're going to be... You, they'll be seeing them. Okay, yeah. so uh, Ashington is... Um, row after row after row of tiny little houses mm-hmm. and they they had two bedrooms and they had a living room and a kitchen downstairs and at the the a small small backyard uh, which at the end of the yard which was only you know 15 20 feet away from the back of the house there was a a coal storage facility and a washroom and what would happen is the miners would go out of the back gate you know, collectively for the start of their shifts, and there were shifts that started in, you know, four or five in the morning, and, you know, so they, they would leave their homes, go out of the back gate, and, and they would walk down these back streets that were wide enough for two vehicles to pass. They were built for horses and carts, you know, to pass, and the horses and carts had a specific purpose. They delivered the coal to the families of Ashington. And there was an unlimited supply of free coal coming out of the mines, you know, because the, the owners of the mines, you know, needed to keep the houses heated. You know, they needed to make sure that, you know, the, the, the mums could heat up the water to do the laundry and stuff. So, so what they did is they supplied free coal to all these miners. And so in the back of every house, there was a coal hole in a wall and the... Horse and cart would deliver the coal, you know, you know, 50, 60, 70 stacks of, you know, sacks of coal on a horse and cart, and the delivery driver would just literally open the coal hole, tip the coal into the coal hole, and go to the next house and do the same thing. So all the way down, you know, would be delivering coal. So, so what happened is at the back of the yard, there was this washroom and a coal storage facility, and on the other side of that, they built a nine, 10-foot brick wall all the way down the back of the streets. So and remember the word wall, because this word is present in the development of every great soccer player. They all banged a ball against the wall. You know, it's absolutely vital to have a wall. Well, in Ashington, every house had a wall at the end of their garden, and the whole road was sided all the way down. It's like looking down a corridor in a massive office building, but without the ceiling. You're looking down this corridor street with nine, ten-foot brick walls on either side. Let me use the words of Cece. Is that how you say Bobby's name? Bobby's mom's name? Sissy. Sissy. Okay, so this is from her book, uh, speaking specifically of Bobby. When his uncles were not around to help and encourage him, Bobby practiced on his own. For hours on end, he kicked a small sponge, rubber ball, or tennis ball against walls or down streets. Kick. Trap, control, shoot, repeat. Shoot against walls, shoot at doors, shoot at a brick in the wall, shoot at a mark on the brick. Left-footed, right-footed, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, getting better and better. Even when I sent him on a message to the corner shop, Bobby would first fish the ball from his pocket, drop it at his feet, and dribble it all the way to the shop and back again. So when, at the age of 10, he was picked to play for his school team, it was not a surprise at all. The kid needed to get life, didn't he? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, but you, like you, you're describing it, and she's then saying this is how my son did it. But as we know that there's no so many players went and played at a, at a high level there, right? It wasn't just him doing this in the streets, right? This is Tiger Woods stuff. Yeah, you know, Earl Woods had Tiger Woods, you know, chipping a ball into a dryer when he was two years of age, you know, and so you know this this is the environment. But here's the interesting thing about the environment: Bobby didn't have to travel. You know, Bobby could literally come home from school, throw down his school bag, you know, and he could walk to the back gate that was no more than maybe 30 feet from the back door, and he was in the soccer field, you know, and, you know, the soccer field had walls on both sides, you know, and it was interesting because those coal holes I mentioned earlier were the goals. They would play across the field, you know, and... Across the street, right? Yeah, across the street, you know, to the two coal holes, you know, and they were the posts, 
So they didn't even throw down jackets like we did when we were kids. You know, they, they had this environment that was perfect for soccer. You know, and this has been confirmed. This isn't me assuming. You know, Jack Charlton says in another, you know, uh, description, we used to play across the street to the coal holes. There were street competitions in the doors where the coal was delivered to each house with a goalpost as we played across the alleys. Bingo. Yep. Bingo. So, so here they had this all-weather surface. You know, it was the, uh, the best um, tar surface of the day. You know, the, the, they had little curbs, you know, and then they had paving stone sidewalks down both sides of the street but no vehicles. So, you know, they, nothing interrupted their games. And, and, you know, there's descriptions about, you know, these kids walking out of the back gate, looking down for their game. Because, you know, a kid who's nine would look down and 60 yards this way, it was his group. A kid who was 12, 40 yards this way, would be his, his group. And so there were all these games age-related going on. And of course, a kid like Bobby Charlton was pulled up to play with the older kids because he was so talented, he was so good, because he spent so much time working with the ball. And he had that family background that, you know, that made him love the game early. So he was a passionate you know, youth soccer player. Now, and here's the other thing. What else did these kids have to do? You know, so they had this perfect environment out back. It wasn't muddy, so mums didn't complain about you getting dirty. What else did these kids have to do? It's kind of like the Brazilian kids in the favelas. What did they have to do? If they stayed in their house, they got a chore. Does this sound similar to Brazil? Yeah, exactly. Like if the kids there, they have two things to do. They play soccer or they're going to get in trouble. That's it. Mm -hmm. So they... the. Parents want them to play soccer. They want them to stay out of trouble. So we always say, like, sports is what keep kids out of crime because in the favelas, the favelas are ran by the drug lords. So the kid that doesn't play soccer, they also want to be cool, and they start getting involved with those things. So it's either that or soccer. So uh, it's, it's very similar. And I think nowadays Brazil is missing a little bit in producing players because of all the other distractions because now there's... Uh, music, there's uh, iPads and there's video games and there's all these kind of stuff that is making those kids not focus that much on soccer. And the violence also got really bad that the parents don't want the, ki the kids uh, on the streets and after certain hours, which that wasn't the case back in the days. They would play in the dark, not even seeing the ball, but they would still be playing. But you described the favelas earlier as literally, I think you said literally concrete jungles. Yeah. And as you describe Ashton in England, it's, it's not concrete, it's brick, right? It's stone, but it's, it's, it's hard surfaces all around for them to play. Right, it's fast. It's fast. It's fast. The fast. game is totally, you know, it's, you know it's, it's, it's soccer on drugs. It's speed soccer. You know, whenever you've got a fast surface, you get better at reacting. And, you know, th th this is fascinating because... Um, you know, there's a specific quote by Jack Charlton is that, that nobody had soccer balls to play with. So, you know, it's that quote it's about that quote, Bobby yeah, yeah. using that rubber ball or a tennis ball. So imagine how good you get when the thing that you're kicking is this big. Mm -hmm. You know, it, your control has to be immaculate. You have to have a focus on a tiny piece of a tiny ball, not a tiny piece of a big ball. You know, and so you develop this finite ability to really, really narrow in on exactly what you need to do, you know, to make the ball do X or Y or Z. You know, and you know, Bobby Charlton had amazing flow and control. And Jack Charlton, for a big guy, you know, he was a dribbler. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, as I mentioned in my book, Jack scored more goals in first-class soccer than anybody. I mean, not just close to the same, you know, but way, way more soccer in first-class soccer than any centre-back in world history. You know, and I, I pulled out Franco Baresi as an example, and, and his goal production was almost nothing. And Maldini was one of these players, I thought, you know, from history, yeah, Maldini, he must have scored 60, 70, 80 goals. I think it was like 17, you know. And, and so um, Jack Charlton scored over 100 first-class goals for Leeds United and England. So these are first division and international goals. Where did he learn to be that good with the ball at his feet? Mm -hmm. He learned in the streets of Ashington. Now he was big, he was good with his head, so he scored a bunch with his head, but he scored a bunch with his feet. And that was from playing in the streets of Ashington. So, you know, and these things are not coincidences. You well, but, but like, 
so let's let's kind of get to a bit to the end, and we can continue going. But a bit to the end, there is a time when Ashington stopped producing players, right? Like, right. And 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 there is specifically something in society that happened worldwide that stopped it, right? These all these kids are playing in the streets. So what obviously appeared at some point that kept kids playing in the street? Technology, cars. Yeah, oh. it's. You know, and you can almost, you know, and in my book, I, I point out that in, in, you know, this year, you know, this number of cars were in Britain this year. And then there was just this massive spike after the 1940s in the number of cars. You know, it, I come from Oxford and Oxford's famous for the university. But I actually did before I went back to take my sports science degree in college. I spent four years in a car factory. I was apprentice buyer in a car factory. You know, and so, you know, the, the, the motor car took over the streets everywhere. And Ashington was, um, the, Ashington and the Northeast is known to have the lowest per car, per uh, capita rather, number of cars. You know, and so, but even Ashington had got flooded with cars. And, you know, all it takes, is, as we know, is one or two neighbors to start complaining about a kid hitting their car with a ball and the parents start telling the kids to go play somewhere else. You know, and so there was this massive two-generation spike in the number of kids coming out of Ashington that made it as professional players. And Almost instantaneously gone. I, I think I asked you, like, how many players have come out, like, within the last few decades, and you said there was one terrible center back or something. Donkey I, of a center back. big donkey of a center back. You know, <laughs> I actually watched footage of him. You know, to see if he had the, you know, these great foot skills, yeah. you know, and, you know, it was terribly disappointing. So, <laughs> you know, he obviously hadn't played, you know, backstreet soccer in Ashington growing up. Yeah. So on. let me add to that because it's funny because when you said that I never thought about cars because in the favelas, there are no cars like sure. you. They people that live like in the bottom, they have space, but like as far up as you go, you can't go with the car. They have what they call moto taxis it's like uh motorcycles that would drive people up and stuff and you pay them but like there are no cars so that part maybe helped brazil in the 40s 50s 60s 70s it took longer for technology took longer to get for, away. yeah so yeah, this yeah. is great i'd never even thought of this yeah I, i've never thought of the fact that in the favelas there's no cars well right there is one of the reasons why the brazil dominance carried on year after year after year mm -hmm. is because the kids weren't discouraged from playing in the streets from you know and because and people didn't need to park in places that could be played in you know because they didn't have cars you know and so technology has been the enemy of producing great players yeah you know and you know that's you know it's th these things until they're pointed out you know are actually really really obvious and and so there's another aspect of of you know ashington that you know, I wanted Bra Brazilian feedback on and, and being as we've only got Philippe, he'll have to do. Um, so, um, <laughs> but, but um, you know, and, and that is um, the, it's, it's kind of the, the, the bullet hole theory, you know, and this is a, a theory of the Second World War. Um, there's, a, there's a gentleman called Abraham Wald, who was a, a scientist and a researcher, and he was given the job of analyzing um, the war in the air to see what they needed to do to, um, uh, to work on planes to make them survive longer. And are we short of time here? No, you're good. I'm saying stay close to the microphone. You're coming in and out. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, what we have to do is, is when we're analyzing what's happening to anything, we have to not look for the obvious. We have to look for the things that aren't, qu aren't quite so obvious. So uh, Abraham Wald and his team were looking at planes returning after combat for the Second World War. And they were looking at where the holes were, and they were looking at reinforcing where the holes were, you know, which seemed to be a logical thing to do. Until Abraham Wald said, you know, aren't we looking at this from the wrong perspective? Because these are the planes that made it back. So we shouldn't really be reinforcing where the holes are. You know, we're not looking at the planes that didn't make it back. So where are the holes in the planes that didn't make it back? And of course, the holes in the planes that didn't make it back were in the, the, the fuel tank and the engine. Sure. You know, and so you know, here we've got 
Ashington, England, that produced all these great players. And, and we know why. It's the culture. It's, it's, you know, the fact they haven't got anything else to do. It's the environment. So the ball can't get away and the repetitions are astronomical. You know, and, you know, but let's look at why they didn't produce fantastic creative dribblers. Now, Bobby Charlton was a goal scorer, but he didn't use moves to beat players. You know, he got into the box, you know, unmarked and he would score. You know, he dribbled against Mexico in the 1966 World Cup and scored a, a long distance goal. But the Mexican defense didn't shut him down. You know, instead of shutting him down, they backed off and they allowed him to take a long distance shot. So he didn't have the creativity of, you know, uh, the, the you know, original Ronaldo, you know, Rivaldo, Ronaldinho, Pelé, Zico, Jairzinho. These people from Ashington were missing that creativity. Why? What's the answer to that? Because they're British. <laughs> You're right. I mean, I know they don't, I, they don't have the culture uh, that we do. Culturally, okay, it's, elaborate on that. Well, Brazil is all about going to the beach, samba, barbecue, having fun, and you know, it's that atmosphere. The weather is perfect all year. Uh, in Rio, it gets 70 degrees in the winter, and I'm like with my jacket and like, <laughs> you know. So that whole atmosphere makes us. I feel, I feel like the word free could describe because we feel free that we can express ourselves and do hey, things. We've all seen the pictures of Carnival. <laughs> it's it's that's free. It's Carnival. Yeah, it's exactly. Free. Exactly. <laughs> so that, that's in our culture. It's all about uh, having fun and, you know, expressing everything. And I think soccer is the vehicle that Brazil express its culture fully. That's why Nike's slogan was Joga Bonito with in Portuguese it means play beautiful and that's that was always our thing it was Brazil if Brazil wins a World Cup like we did in 94 we still get criticized from the World Cup in 94 that we won because the team were more defensive or was more pragmatic had Romario which was a fantastic was a genius and had Bebeto who was also really good but that team was more they didn't have the Brazilian DNA, and that's not enough for us. Well, you won the World Cup. Yeah, but we didn't play beautiful. Like, we complain about that. So that's in our culture. That's our priority. Brazil doesn't have to win. Brazil needs to win playing beautiful. And that part of our culture translates in how we develop our players. So compare that to, to contrast that to British culture. So, and, and you have to ask why. You know, and so, um, so, you know, I've done a lot of historical study on both societies and and Philippe described the Brazilian culture fantastically you know and so you know there's there's really nothing more that needs to be said you know they're lovers and they're not warriors now Britain has a completely different history you know and at one point in time I think it was 179 countries were somewhat under British domination you know and dominion and uh, the empire involved about 60 countries you know, at the height of the British Empire. And, and so, you know, going back in history, you know, the, the culture was that, you know, the, um, the church, you know, basically ruled the land. And the church was in the control of the royal family, the landowners. And, you know, they used to appoint the priests. They, they would appoint um, people that were going to make the population of England follow their their dictates the knights of the land and you know crazy story but you know my my eldest daughter is married to a knight they do you know renaissance festivals and and uh, he's sir william and you know he rides his charger into the arena and they have jousts and they have battles and but the knights of england were the police force you know they were the honorable guys they did the right thing but they were in the pay of the landowners and they were there to keep the subjects, the serfs, doing the job that everybody else wanted them to do so that the landowners could have big feasts in their castles or, you know, whatever it was. So, so what you've got is you've got this, this British feudal background, you know, that then led into empire, you know, because um, Britain being an island nation became a great seafaring nation so they could connect to, you know, to countries all over the world, to land all over the world. And, you know, and there was this fighting mentality that over the centuries became part of British DNA. You know, so when I was growing up, if somebody nutmegged you, 
the next thing that you would try to do in the next play would be break their leg. If they had, you killed creativity. Oh, it, no question. Anybody that played creatively wore a target on their back. You know, and so we, we move on with Britain to um, the Crimean conflict, to the, the Boer War, to uh, the First World War, the Second World War. And all the time, you know, the plebiscite was bred as cannon fodder. You know, they were the ones that went to the front and died, mm -hmm. you know, in order to fight the battles. It was never the generals that died. They gave the orders for, on the Somme, I think it was 20,000 Brits died in one day, the first day of conflict on the Somme. Of course, the general didn't die. You know, it was all the working classes that died. And so they were bred to fight. My great, 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 great grandfather is a gentleman called Daniel Mendoza, who was ostensibly the, the boxing champion of the world. He was the British champion of the world. And he wasn't even a heavyweight. He was a middleweight. You know, and, uh, and, and, you know, this was the mentality. He came from the great unwashed. He came from the working classes of Bethnal Green, London. And that was where my family, my dad's family, grew up, you know. And strange as it may sound, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Adolf Hitler because my dad's family and my mum's family were evacuated from Birmingham and London to the countryside in Oxford. And after the war was over, that's where my dad met my mum is in Oxford because they both worked in the car factories in Oxford and they met in the car factories, you know. And so, so you know, we've got this situation where the Brits were warriors and they were brought up with this blue collar mentality soccer was work and soccer was fight you know in brazil soccer was play and soccer was create and here you've got the bullet hole in the ashington theory because you know um they didn't have the engine of creativity that you know to use the plane analogy kept the plane in the air. They didn't have that engine of creativity in Ashington. So none of the players that came out of Ashington used moves, were creative dribblers. You know, and at the same time in Brazil, well, you tell the people about Pelé and you tell the people about you know, the 1958 and 62 World Cup winning sides. I mean, it's incredible. Like Pelé, Garrincha, Newton Santos, um, who else? Help me out here. 58, the DD. Uh, just amazing players that, uh, I mean, I watched clips, but it's funny because people that are older, like my dad watched a little bit, but he was young, but like people that are older than my dad, they always say like, these guys were just phenomenal. Like they were so good and even better than the ones that we have nowadays, uh, even in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s which I find it really hard to believe because growing up watching Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, Rivaldo, Romario, and even guys that weren't like uh, superstars like Denilson, like that guy, he, he, for him, it, he even says in interviews, like, I like to beat a guy and let the guy fall in his butt and hear the crowd like, <sighs> that for me was way more fulfilling than scoring goals. He scored like, over just 100 goals in his career as a winger, played for Brazilian national team, never really started. Well, it was hard at that time with the competition he had, but like you see like that his mentality was was different. Like he looked at soccer in a different way. Like I want to, uh, there's Puyol coming to defend me. I want to scissor him and making him fall. That's going to be my, my enjoyment. Like hear the whole crowd like, like Robinho was the same way. Robinho would, would many times do scissors, be the guy, stop, come back, come back, be the guy again. And the guys were like, you could see, like they were mesmerized, like I can't stop him. I got to jump in here because, uh, you know, 1970 World Cup, Tostau gets the ball and he's on the edge of the England penalty area, a little off to the left. And he's up against, you know, the greatest defender in British history, Bobby Moore. And Tostau nutmegged him. And Bobby Moore doesn't or didn't get nutmegged. You know, this, this is a guy that was incredibly quick on his feet and, and tossed out, absolutely destroyed him. But going back to the 58 World Cup, there's a famous clip in Sweden. Pelé gets the ball in the middle of the penalty area, flicks it up, pops it over the defender's head and volleys it into the back of the net. Yeah. These are things and that... And he was 17 years old. 17 years old. And these are things that English players didn't even conceptualize doing, let alone had the ability to do. And it's culture, 
you know, and this is the missing bullet hole in English and American soccer, mm -hmm. is we don't build a culture of creativity, of leadership, of bravery, you know, it, we just don't do it. But so there's a lesson there. There's a lesson there to be learned as an American, right, talking about American soccer from both England and Brazil, from both the favelas of Rio and Ashington, England, right? And, 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 and the lesson there is they both are concrete jungles, right? Where kids go out and they play and they play in tight spaces and they get a ton of repetitions, right? And so that's a lesson for us to be learned that we need to apply to how we, how we construct and organize um, for kids to play. Um, and, and, but also the creative piece, recognizing that as great as England is, they've won one World Cup and it was in 1966 on home soil. And that ball didn't go in. <laughs> and the ball did not <laughs> go in, right? Yeah, hey, we won I'm, four to two, get over it. <laughs> we still won by goal. If VAR was yeah. there. But, but like, I mean, but seriously, and, and, and to, to preview a little bit of what we're gonna talk about in future podcasts is, is we're gonna talk about that uh, one big giant thing that's wrong with American soccer is Andy Barney and English coaches that came over and taught us how to do it, right? Leave me out of this. <laughs> and so we'll get into that in, in future, but I think the lesson that, that and, and as, as we synthesize this, this episode that, that was really uh, constructed around Ashton in England with Brazilian influence is, is that, that, that what, what is happening in American soccer is so wrong-headed. They're missing the bullet holes and not understanding the bullet holes that matter, right? Whether they're in the gas tank or just in the fuselage. And, and, and what they're missing is that, you know, Overland Park Soccer Complex here in Kansas City or the four turf soccer complexes that we have are, I mean, what total? $50, $60 million of, of money has been invested into youth development, but they're all the wrong thing, right? They're giant soccer fields that are gorgeous and the kids love to play on, but they don't encourage the type of play or give the type of rep repetition or even reflect the best environments that, that players have grown up through history, whether it be the favelas of Brazil or the the, um, the the streets of Ashington, and and so, you know, today specifically, I'm wearing the soccer box T-shirt, which I don't know how many of the, you listening are recognize what soccer box is, but it's a few facilities that we've built initially in Kansas City, but now we've got them built in Dallas, Texas, and soon to be Houston, Tex Texas, and 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 Connecticut, but they're facilities that that were really created in response to research that we've done on the greatest, the greatest areas, the Ashton Englands of this world, recognizing that the, that the future of American soccer could be so much better. Right, right, it, and, and let, me, let me interject is, let, let's look at a completely different culture. You know, just, we're gonna do an episode on this, I know, but Iceland, Iceland was nothing until they built tiny fields all over the, you know, the country and they negated the effect of weather by building indoor facilities and playing small-sided games with multiple fields under one roof. And people say, you know, they've got more qualified coaches than the rest of the world. I'm sorry, that's a negative. You know, yeah. it's, we've, we've shown that all over the world, players develop in the absence of coaching. Yes. So you can't tell me that qualifying coaches, you know, in match analysis and tactical systems, etc., is the key to Iceland. The key to Iceland is when the kids are young, there's, there's in their local community, I, I was there in the summer and I'm out in the middle of nowhere. You know, and I get, you know, I, I hope in that podcast we got the photographs because I'm in the middle of the nowhere and my wife took a photograph of me and there's no houses around and there is a beautiful small arena field in the middle of nowhere. There was a school by the side of it and a very tiny hamlet you know, by the side of the school, but on three sides, nothing around, you know, and they spent a fortune on this small field, you know, and there's gyms in every single community where they play small-sided games. So it doesn't matter if the weather's bad and then across the country, and it's a small country with a low population, there's 15 big field houses that you can break down into multiple small-sided games. You know, and that's why Iceland have gone from being ridiculously low on the FIFA list, like 169th, to being in the top 20 and 30 over the last, you know, decade or so. Because the kids that came up through those environments now are playing on the national teams. You know, they took out the weather as a factor. They brought it all indoors. You know, they, they provided facilities literally right outside the back door of the community, the kids in the community all over Iceland. So, you know, this, you know, you mentioned France, you know, and the suburbs of Paris. 
same thing, small fields. I was there in the summer for the Women's World Cup, you know, and I went to small field after small field, suburb after suburb, and tiny fields. I deviate a lot. I go off track, you know, and you know, I'm looking at the environment. Why did Paris produce all these great players? Lukaku, Hazard for Belgium, they had a big uptick in building these small fields. You know, where does Jadon Sancho come from? You know, Brewer, the kids that won the Under-17 World Cup for England, right? they grew up in Islington playing on small fields. They're absolutely, completely obvious what we need to do, and we're doing the opposite here in Kansas City. And German, German Renaissance, right, uh, in the 21st century, came from a push to build small fields all across Germany. And it happened when they, was it 90 or 2000 maybe that they failed for the Euros or something like that. Um, But coming back to Ashington, because this can't be lost as we wrap up this podcast, is Ashington was amazing and killed it from a player development perspective until cars showed up in the streets and Ashington has been nothing since. And Ashington, presumably, right, they they haven't er rectified the problem. Ashington probably doesn't even realize that the the reason they stopped being a football hotbed, a talent hotbed for football, is because they put cars in the streets and the kids can no longer play. So, so, you know, I'm a mom, right? And, you know, I'm a mom in the, in 1910, 1920, 1930, 1940, you know, and, you know, I've got somewhere between probably three kids and eight kids in this two-bedroom house. You know, do I want my sons under my feet, you know, while I'm in there, you know, feeding the baby, looking after the two-year-old, you know, causing trouble, you know, whatever, you know, sons do, you know, and no, you know, hey, get out of here. You know, if they're in there, I'm going to give them a chore. If all the chores are done, I want them out from under my feet, but I want them close. I want them where I can quickly pop out and, you know, see if they're okay, you know, and there's nowhere closer than literally the back road. Now, here's the other thing, and I don't know about the culture in, in Brazil, but I suspect it was pretty similar. Back in Ashington in those days, girls didn't play soccer. So the girls and the mums went to the front side of the house, and the developers in Ashington did a wonderful thing for the game of soccer without ever meaning to, is on the front side of the house, everybody had a little garden, a little path, and there was a bigger path that connected all the houses in the street to each other, you know, fences, and the mums would go out there, the kids would play hopscotch or whatever games that the girls played, you know, and the mums would talk over the garden fences, gathering little groups, you know, and it was a really pleasant environment. It's gone to the seed a little bit now, but back in the day, everybody was house proud, they kept the environment up, and they had the kind of like this idyllic mums and daughters place on the other side of the house. Well, Without ever meaning to, they gave free reign to, you know, the young yobs of the neighborhood, the louts, you know, the lads, to go out there and cause havoc with a soccer ball in the back alleys, you know, and and so, but they weren't alleys, they were streets, they were small-sided soccer fields, uh, and and it's just amazing how the planners planned perfectly for soccer, and there's another huge influence that, you know, I need shooting if I forget to mention, is... Ashington had a lighting system, you know, because remember, these workers in the mine had to get up at four in the morning when it was pitch dark. In the middle of the winter, from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., it was pitch black in Ashington, you know, and, you know, dawn started at 6 a.m. in deep middle of winter. And so the mine owners said, look, we've got the energy, we've got the cold, let's put lamps every 30 yards down these back streets of Ashington. And there's one absolutely fantastic story where the Jackie Milburn story, why don't you tell it? You no, probably... no, you, you've got it, you've got it. Okay, so Jackie Milburn was given a new pair of soccer boots for Christmas and he, he bugged his parents to get up and give him the boots and finally at three in the morning they gave in because they weren't going to sleep until they did, you know, and Jackie grabbed his boots, put them on and ran out to the back road, you know, literally outside his back door, you know, and he ran to where the game was and he said, I quote, I was broken hearted because I had my new boots on and I couldn't get in the game for 10 minutes, (laughs) you know, and this is three in the morning. Well, where in the world at that time could kids play all night long? Because the lights stayed on all night long if they wanted. You know, so this is three in the morning on Boxing Day, as we call it in England, the day after Christmas. And, you know, he just got his boots, 
you know, and, you know, he was out there, you know, dying to play and he couldn't get in the game for 10 minutes. And he remembered being absolutely devastated, you know, by that experience, you know. And so this shows how vital light is. You know, the closer you get to the equator, like Brazil, the light stays longer during the day. The days are longer, you know. So, you know, they could play much longer than we can in North America without lights. So Iceland, by bringing everything indoors, everything was lit 24-7. Until they wanted to stop playing, you know, they played, mm -hmm. you know. And, and so that's, that's vital if you're going to develop, you know, a soccer player. If you can add just 10% to that player's development because the light stays available longer, you know, but Ashenden didn't add 10%. You know, at the time when the kids were home, they added a massive amount of extra light, like hours and hours and hours from when the light went out at six, the kids would play till 10 o'clock till their parents made them come to bed. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, again, guys, I, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I, I think uh, just being a, an enthusiast for the sport here in America, having, uh, having a, a scheduled conversation, right, when we look at, at, at a British culture and, and a Brazilian culture, but then infuse that with stories from Iceland and France and other cultures, I think it's, I think it's something that's missing. And I'm excited to continue this project, this podcast, um, because I think here in American culture, I think, I think there's so much left for us to learn um, can, can I make a point here as well yeah this is about solutions obviously in order to get people on board with you know how we solve the problem we've got to identify the problem but we're sitting here in Kansas City you know with millions of dollars of indoor soccer facilities not because you know we wanted to lose money but we, we really wanted to develop the game the way that it has been in the soccer hotbeds of years gone by you know, and in doing so, develop brave creative leaders for life because inevitably, if you can beat two players and score a great goal, the team's going to expect you to take that leadership responsibility and that carries over into other things in life. Yep, yep. So, good. Uh, thank you, guys. And uh, like, subscribe, all that stuff, wherever you listen. Um, and hopefully, we'll get better at this uh, content production thing. Thanks, Philippe. Thanks, Andy. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it.